Here on Stolen Lives, we discuss brutal and heartbreaking cases against children. Themes may include child murder, torture, and sexual, domestic, and child abuse. I do try my best to remain respectful for the babies in these stories and leave out unnecessary details that honestly none of us need to know to understand the frustration of why and how this ever happened. However, if you find any of these themes triggering, this podcast may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. This week's episode is a listener suggestion. Thank you to Kelly for bringing Dylan's story to my attention. It is listeners like you that keep the podcast going. I'm also going to take this time to recommend Elaine's coverage of Dylan's story on her podcast, Suffer the Little Children. She does an incredible job with what she does, and the more ears on her podcast, the better. 2019 Ohio. Baby Dylan was only two months old when his life was taken in one of the worst ways possible. This story is extremely horrific, because little Dylan was overlooked and injured by those meant to love and protect him, his own parents. He was removed from a loving foster placement by the agencies that should safeguard children like Dylan. But there is hope, because legislation that exists in this sweet baby's name has been created to stop these tragedies continuously occurring. This is Dylan's story. In the early morning hours of January 10, 2019, 41-year-old Daniel Groves and his 39-year-old wife Jessica attended the Southern Ohio Medical Center with Jessica in labor. But when questioned about how long she'd been in labour, or when asked questions about what prenatal care Jessica had had, the couple were flat, disconnected and uncooperative. Jessica was asked to give a urine sample, normal request given the circumstances. But Jessica refused, and there would be a good reason for that that would soon become apparent. When examined, Jessica was fully dilated and ready to push this baby out. But she wasn't appearing in pain, you wouldn't even know she was in active labour. Now, for anyone who has been in labour, for any normal person who hasn't had pain medication, this isn't normal. We started asking her questions such as um, how many weeks she was, if this was her first baby, who was her physician, um, had she had any complications with the pregnancy, and uh, she did not answer any of our questions. It was around this time that Daniel admits his wife had used heroin two days earlier. If it hadn't already, this set off alarm bells for doctors and they took Jessica's verbal approval out of the equation. They took a urine sample via a catheter and it was there in black and white. Jessica tested positive for amphetamines. Daniel seemed almost afraid when he was told this. I think he knew what all this meant, that this new baby was going to be removed from their care immediately. But he would also tell doctors Jessica never received any prenatal care because she was simply too high to bother. That Jessica was a nurse herself, and that she kept using heroin throughout her pregnancy so she wouldn't go through withdrawals. Dylan James Groves would come into the world just after 6am January 10th, 2019. He was tiny, being a month premature, weighing only 5 pound 10 and measuring 19 inches long. His face was the sweetest. A little upturned nose and massive blue eyes. A gorgeous baby boy. 
because Jessica had used it basically right up until Dylan's birth. I actually would not be surprised if she used after the two-day period Daniel had claimed. But Dylan was born with drugs in his system. A whole cocktail of drugs was found in a sample of his umbilical cord. Amphetamines, methamphetamines, fentanyl, opiates and morphine. This poor baby. Most likely due to the amount of drugs in his system and his prematurity, Dylan needed to be put on oxygen and he was placed in the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU. Despite this poor baby's condition, motherly and parental instinct did not kick in for Daniel and Jessica because neither went to visit the baby in the several days he was in the NICU or even thought to ask how he was. Even after birth, Jessica had 15 minutes with him for that newborn and mother bonding, but Jessica wouldn't hold him, telling nurses to, quote, put him there on the wall, unquote. To your knowledge, was there any request from the mother to have her baby back in her room or hold the baby? Not to my knowledge. Dylan spent five days in the NICU to ensure his withdrawal symptoms were under control. And to say those words out loud, to hear that in the later criminal trial, I can't get my head around that. Dylan was so teeny tiny, and to know he went through the seizures and the tremors that come with drug withdrawal, this poor baby had to fight right from the start. Daniel was drug tested, and that came back negative, and he insisted he had no idea of Jessica's extensive drug use during pregnancy. Only the small amount of heroin she was taking to stop withdrawals, like that was okay. Because of this, and because Daniel didn't have a violent criminal history and no previous child protection involvement, there was an initial plan to allow Daniel to take baby Dylan home. But the social workers at the hospital stood their ground against child services, and they are to be commended for this. They believed there was no way, no how, that Dylan should go home with Daniel because Jessica still lived there and she had tested positive for drugs, and Dylan had a whole drug cocktail in his system. Quote, Because with mum and baby both being positive, it should be an automatic removal. Unquote. January 15, 2019, Dylan was placed under the care of Scioto County Children's Services and with a foster family. We will refer to Children's Services as SCCS for the remainder of this episode. Daniel and Jessica's oldest child, 14-year-old Daniel Jr., was also removed from the couple's care. Dylan would be placed with third-grade elementary teacher Andrea Bowling, and to say it was love at first sight for Andrea, that would be an understatement. And 12-day-old Dylan immediately became her entire life. As soon as SCCS told her Dylan was coming into her care and his condition, she was on the phone to family and friends to get everything necessary sorted out for that very evening. Diapers, clothing, formula, bedding, toys. She took leave from her job at the school so she could be there for Dylan around the clock. Through the withdrawal and his desire to be constantly held to deal with those side effects, she would later describe a baby Dylan as sweet and loving, a happy baby. Quote, He loved being swaddled and held close, and I did that with him for 12 straight days. He was just so precious and adorable. I took thousands of pictures of him in the short time I had him. Unquote. The plan was always to return the children to their parents, and they were given requirements they needed to comply with before this was even possible. Through a court program called Family Reunification Through Recovery. This program is similar to drug court. Those eligible for the program are all addicts or recovering addicts who have lost or are in danger of losing custody of their children. 
and depending on the situation depends what they need to do. Whether that means time in a rehabilitation centre, counselling, even jail time. What is consistent for everyone in this program is weekly drug testing, as well as weekly hearings in front of a judge where they give a progress report and are again drug tested. There is no time frame for this program. It is completely at the judge's discretion when or if parents regain custody of their children. Dylan did have supervised visitation with Daniel and Jessica, which Andrea would take him along to. Andrea would report her concerns to SCCS, that she believed Jessica was still using drugs, that she was acting strange and erratic. But it seemed that SCCS did not take Andrea's concerns seriously. The supervised visits were weekly on a Friday, but after the second visit, SCCS told Andrea there would be no more, that on January 28, 2019, Dylan would be returned to Daniel and Jessica Groves. And this was because Daniel had provided a negative urine drug test. Interestingly, though, this wasn't something he had to provide under supervision. He could just bring the urine sample with him to the meeting, and this would become important later. Dylan's foster mother, Andrea, begged SCCS to reconsider, but the decision was made. Were you advised that Dylan was going to be placed back with his parents? I assumed he would be eventually. Not in 12 days, but eventually. Okay. When were you advised that he was going to be placed back? Was it at that meeting or shortly thereafter? No, it wasn't at that meeting. Um, I believe the meeting was on a Wednesday, and it was the, the, the Friday after that Wednesday. Um, I had actually called Children's Services to find out when our next visit was going to be, because normally you have a weekly visit. And I was just calling to find out when our next visit was going to be so that I could, you know, just have it on my schedule. Okay. And then they informed me that he was going to be reunited and to have him at the office that following Monday morning. Now, that following Monday, would that have been the 28th? Yes, yeah, it was okay. 28th. And were you part of the actual transition or exchange back to the family? Yes. Uh, Daniel was there to pick up Dylan. Um, when did he arrive? Okay, so I was there at 9, and he got there about 9.15. Okay. And uh, how was his demeanor then? The same. The same as the first time I met him. Okay. And um, what happened during that exchange? Um, we... Uh, he brought in a car seat for Dylan, and... I was getting Dylan's belongings together. What, uh, what, what did you do with those belongings? Uh, I gave them to Daniel. Okay. And I gave him um, go ahead. some formula diapers, his blanket, his quilt from the hospital, some pictures. <laughs> I gave him a Bible. Okay. Now, I'm going to hand you what have been marked as State's Exhibits 23, 22 and 23. 
States Exhibit 22. You recognize this item? Yes. Okay, what is this? It's actually a picture of a picture, but what is it? It's a picture of Dylan that I that I took. Okay, is that one of the pictures you gave to? Yes. Okay. States Exhibit 23. You recognize that? Yes. What is it? Another picture of Dylan. Is that a picture you took as well? Yeah. By those is Dylan Rose. Did you provide Daniel with anything else besides the? Um, I gave him a letter to him and Jessica. Okay. And uh, did you provide your number or anything? I did. That? I just basically in the letter said that how much I loved Dylan, cared about him, and that I just wanted to be, maybe, you know, if I could be involved or um, to have him maybe just let me know about some milestones that he reaches. Did you, uh, did you offer to help if they were needing help? I did, help? I said, if you ever need anything, just call me and I gave him my phone number. Did they ever reach out to you after that? Is Daniel Groves in the courtroom here today? Yes. Did you point him out for the court? Is, really Is Jessica Groves in the courtroom here today? Yes, standing up there. Arthur, so record, so reflect. Order reflect the witnesses pointed to and identified the defendants Daniel Groves and Jessica Groves. Thank you, ma'am. No further questions, Your Honor. It is so evident that those 12 days Dylan was with Andrea Bowling that he was very loved, protected, and cared for. What is comforting to me is that his short life did have a time experiencing that. We need more Andrea Bowlings in this world. It was part of the requirements for Daniel to regain temporary custody of Dylan that Jessica Groves was not allowed to live in the home and she would be only allowed to supervise visits. And Daniel needed to sign basically a contract stating he was going to keep to those conditions if he was to get Dylan back. Daniel told SCCS he had taken six months leave from his job at Rural King so he could be there for Dylan during those important first few months of life. As for Jessica, she needed to complete a drug and alcohol assessment, submit weekly drug tests that needed to be negative, obviously, and complete drug treatment, as well as not staying at the house but she could see her son under supervision. Jessica also needed to sign a contract stating she was going to keep to these conditions. I am just going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor this week, Factor. You all know I've been super busy lately, bringing more episodes to you, and that means I needed some help with behind-the-scenes stuff. Enter lovely listener, Sarah. And given she's in the US, she is lucky to be in the thick of summer fun. And where else are you in summer in your free time? The beach. 
This is where our sponsor for this week comes in, Factor. Factor delivers fresh, never-frozen meals right to your doorstep. You can skip your weekly trip to the grocery store and not waste your precious hours chopping and prepping and cleaning up too. That's what wins me over. Factor's fresh and delicious meals are ready in literally two minutes. All you have to do is heat and enjoy, and then you can get back outside and soak up all that sun by the pool. Every week, they have more than 34 restaurant quality options for you to choose from, and you will never get bored with the endless options Factor has. Sarah loved Factor's cold-pressed juices and smoothies. They are so refreshing when it's hot out. Sarah raved how good they taste, and she's a hard one to please. And if you are out of the house, there is always Factor's lunch-to-go option. There is no heating. You can literally eat them while soaking up that vitamin D. Factor really has helped Sarah free up so much time in her day, which means more time to enjoy summer. Head to factormeals.com slash stolen50 and use code stolen50 to get 50% off. That's code STOLEN50 at factormeals.com slash STOLEN50 to get your 50% off. The Early Intervention Service Coordinator, Stephanie Jenkins, was assigned to the Groves case. It would be her job to conduct home visits to make sure Daniel was staying on track and Dylan was meeting all his milestones and getting the parenting he needed and rightly deserved. Stephanie would also link Daniel to services to help him get food stamps, access to therapy and transport, basically teach him to adult. She tried to contact Daniel from January 25th until early March. On March 11th, 2019, she gave up and the Groves were removed from the program. Daniel's SCCS caseworker, Patricia Craft, would have her first visit with Daniel and Dylan on February 4th, 2019, at their home at 2241 Mount Hope Road in Otway, Ohio. She would later tell the court that Dylan appeared quiet and he had no visible injuries. But after this visit, and for the next two weeks, Patricia attempted to contact Daniel to arrange another visit, but she couldn't reach him by phone or through unannounced visits to the Grove family home. Patricia tried the only other avenue she had. She went to Daniel Jr.'s school. She gave the 14-year-old a note asking for his dad to call SCCS. Patricia also left notes on Daniel's front door and in their mailbox. It would take until February 25, 2019 for Daniel to call SCCS. This next visit, Patricia would report Dylan appeared clean and well cared for, and again he had no visible injuries. Daniel told Patricia he had taken Dylan to the doctor's, and the six-week-old baby weighed 8 pound 9 and was 22 inches long now. He said he'd been keeping to what was required of him and that Jessica had only been visiting during the day. None of this was ever confirmed with external agencies, only taken at Daniel's word. March 18, 2019. Daniel left a voicemail for Patricia that he would have to cancel that day's home visit, that he had to leave town to visit his dying father. March 28, 2019 would be the last time anyone outside Daniel or Jessica saw Dylan alive. During this final home visit, Jessica was present. Patricia would report that Jessica was holding her son and feeding him with his bottle during the visit. And Dylan appeared to be feeding well and he had no visible injuries. However, during any of her visits with the family, she did not examine him thoroughly. Something she definitely was required to do. Daniel and Jessica told Patricia they had been keeping to what was required of them, 
and they asked when Jessica could move back in and they could be a family again. Patricia told the couple it could be discussed during the next hearing, on April 3rd, 2019. Unfortunately, this hearing would never happen, because by this point, baby Dylan Groves would be dead, murdered by his own parents. April 3rd, 2019, Daniel would again leave a voicemail for Patricia that he and the children had to go back to visit his dying father, and then the car had broken down and now they were stranded. After this, Patricia tried to return Daniel's call on four different phone numbers, all used by Daniel, but she was unsuccessful. It also became clear at this time that Daniel and Jessica were lying about going to their appointments, and in fact they hadn't gone since late February. Desperate to contact Daniel, Patricia attempted trying his place of work, Rural King, only to find out that he had quit, but not recently quit. He hadn't worked there for almost a year. Mid-April 2019, caseworker Patricia would go back and forth to the Groves family home for a week straight, but there was never anyone ever home. She even tried going back to Daniel Jr.'s school to again leave a note for him for his father. Patricia would try and talk to Daniel Jr. to see if he could shed any light on what was happening with his baby brother. And the 14-year-old appeared nervous. He claimed Dylan was doing fine, although he did admit that Jessica was back living with the family. But most tellingly, Daniel Jr. said his grandfather wasn't dying and they hadn't been visiting him. He had no idea what she was talking about. Daniel Jr. was immediately taken into SCCS custody. He would ultimately be placed with his aunt and uncle, where he remains to this day. The family's caseworker, Patricia Craft, then messaged Daniel again to tell him they had removed Daniel Jr., that they had been to the house numerous times and no one was there, and that Daniel needed to bring Dylan and all his belongings to SCCS as they were taking custody back of the baby. But this never happened. A missing persons report was filed with the Scioto County Sheriff's Department. Now, I have seen criticism that an Amber Alert was never issued, and the family's caseworker has said this never happened because her supervisor believed that if an Amber Alert was issued, it would give the agency a bad reputation because they had lost a child that was under their care. Because I guess that was so much more important to them making sure Dylan was safe. May 3rd, 2019. Patricia went back to the Groves family home, but this time with the sheriff's office. But yet again, there was no answer, although they would hear dogs barking in the home. They would return sporadically over the next two weeks. Sometimes Daniel and Jessica's cars were in the driveway, and still there was no response to knocking on the front door or returned calls from notes left. Honestly, I don't understand why there isn't a reasonable doubt here that a baby, an almost four-month-old baby at this point, is in serious grave danger. Why couldn't authorities get a warrant to gain entry into the home? They knew Daniel and Jessica were there. Their cars were there. There was a reason they weren't answering the door. Why not use forcible entry? And this did seem to be the plan on May 20th, 2019. Although the fact no one had laid eyes on this baby for two months and it had taken this long to do that is ridiculous in my mind. Scioto County Sheriff's Captain John Murphy visited the Groves' home on this day but when they got to the property, it had been cabled off with motion detectors. A neighbour saw the authorities and told Captain Murphy the couple would leave early on four-wheelers and would return late in the evening. But it was at this point they saw them and the chase commenced, 
Danielle and Jessica were obviously hiding something and they didn't want to talk to the police. The couple were chased into the woods before evading the authorities, and a search warrant was granted with probable cause. Although this would take another stupid, ridiculous 20 days. I am flabbergasted right now at the amount of delays we're talking about here. June 10th, 2019. Police swarmed the Groves family home and on loudspeaker demanded for the couple to come out. Jessica did willingly come out on her own, wearing just a t-shirt and underwear, but she became very confrontational, claiming that SCCS had already taken Dylan from them months ago and to leave them alone. Now, this obviously was not the case. SCCS knew it, the police knew it, and obviously Jessica and Daniel knew it. Jessica Groves was arrested and taken into custody. When questioned, Jessica would claim she had no idea where Daniel was. Daniel stuck it out and he refused to surrender to police. He would barricade himself inside the trailer for six whole hours. To try and get Daniel out, State Highway Patrol Special Response Team joined deputies with a helicopter and a SWAT truck. Now there was a concern that maybe Daniel was armed, so it wasn't safe for them just to enter the trailer. The Special Response Team sent in a robot, but it wouldn't be until the early morning hours of June 11, 2019, he too surrendered to police. In custody, Daniel and Jessica kept to their story that child services had already taken both Daniel Jr. and Dylan. Detective Jodie Conkle interviewed the couple separately. In her interview with Jessica, Detective Conkle would later describe Jessica in court as standoffish, cold and annoyed. It was clear she wasn't going to get anywhere with her, so she turned her attention to Daniel, who thus far did seem the weaker of the two. That's probably the wrong word, but even at the hospital when Dylan was born, it seems that if you can get Daniel talking, he won't stop. And that's exactly what happened. It would be very quickly that Daniel would admit the one thing everyone had feared, that Dylan was dead. Daniel Groves would admit his baby was dead, that apparently on March 28, 2019, he had found the infant deceased in his crib, but no one had harmed him. That when it was obvious there was nothing they could do to revive him, they had buried the two-month-old baby. Daniel tells Detective Conkle he would take them to where they buried his son. And this happened the next day, June 12, 2019. Officers could not be prepared for what they would find. Dylan's decomposed remains were found, the baby having died only 49 days after being returned to his father's care. Let me direct your attention to June 2019. Did you have an opportunity to assist in the investigation of defendants Daniel and Jessica Groves? Yes, I did. Who did you interview first? Jessica. Okay. If you would, describe to the members of the jury what her demeanor and appearance is as you see her there at the sheriff's office. Um, very standoffish, cold, um, didn't really want to talk to me, um, kind of annoyed. Were you making an effort to gain information about Defendant Daniel Groves' whereabouts from her? Absolutely. Okay. And was she willing to provide you information about his whereabouts? No, she said she had no idea where he was at. Okay. Were you seeking to obtain information about baby Dylan's whereabouts? Yeah, that, that was my, at that point, it was my main priority is, where is this child? Is he okay? Is he somewhere where we can go get him? What did she tell you about where baby Dylan might be? She told me she had no idea because Children's Services had picked him up, along with her other child. In your conversation with her, does she indicate what his well-being was? 
Yeah, she said, as far as she knows, he's fine. Were you able to ascertain whether or not Children's Services had come and picked that baby up? Yes, they had not. Okay. Who did you interview after that? Daniel. Okay. Before we get there, so at the time you're interviewing Defendant Jessica Groves, Daniel Groves is not in custody, is that right? That is correct. Where is he, to your knowledge? To my knowledge, he's still inside of the trailer on Mount Hope. Okay. So at some point, they do bring him to you? That is correct. Okay. What did he initially tell you about the whereabouts of baby Dylan? Children's Services had came and picked him up. Okay. Describe to the jury his demeanor and his appearance as you see him in there. Um, Daniel appeared to be um, dope sick. Um, I don't know if you guys know what that means, but a person who maybe has been using illegal drugs and they haven't had some recently or they're coming down off of it, they're sick, they moan, they groan. Um, at one point when I was speaking to him, he actually uh, laid on the floor and was groaning and passing gas. Was there a time during that first interview uh, when he admitted to you that baby Dylan was dead? Yes, there was. Okay. What did he tell you happened? Uh, he initially uh, told me that he found him in the crib, which is more described as like a pack-and-play type thing to me. I uh, just found him in there, deceased. Did you attempt after that to speak to Defendant Jessica Groves further? Yes, I did. Okay. And what was the nature of that? Um, to, to get more information, to uh, find out, you know, after I talked to him, you know, I'm trying to gather more information. She didn't want to talk very closed off and cold. Did you have an opportunity to show her a photograph of the baby? Yes, I actually uh, had pictures of baby Dylan, and I tried to show her that to see if I could get some kind of response to get her to open up. She refused to look at it very cold and would not look at it. In response uh, to your conversations with the two of them on June 10th, what did you do? So uh, after talking to them, uh, myself, uh, Captain John Murphy, um, let's see, Detective Matt Spencer, multiple people along with canine dogs, which were brought in out of county, drug task force, there we took um, Daniel out there to where he told me that uh, Dylan's body would be, and we searched for hours. Um, the area we were in, it was kind of up and down hilly area. There was a creek that ran through. We were everywhere searching there, multiple people. We searched there and around the residence. When you went out there, did you have information about what type of items you might be looking for? Yes, um, he uh, had told me that the baby was in some type of container. He couldn't remember what type of container. Um, told me that's where he put it, kind of, you know, what the baby might be wearing because, you know, there should be stuff there. Even I've had other cases where, you know, a body's been left out. Even if animals would, you know, eat on a body or drag stuff off, you always find something. Uh, we found nothing. Um, is that a photograph that you Yes, it is. Okay. And was that one of the items, one of the photographs you took a photograph of at the residence? Yes, it was. Yes, that is another photograph of baby Dylan that I took a picture of while at the residence. When you found nothing out there, did you go back and talk to either defendant? Yes, I did. Okay. 
During that conversation, uh, does Defendant Groves admit to you that the story about CPS was a lie? Yes, he does. Okay. Does he deny that he lied about the location of the baby's body? That is correct. He told me that that was the location of the baby. His stories kept changing so much, it was kind of hard to keep up. But yes, he, um, he did deny that. Okay. And he repeatedly asked to speak to his wife. Is that correct? Yes. He wanted to speak to Jessica, was worried about her well-being, and wanted to make sure she was okay. Did you accommodate that request? Yes, I did. And this method worked. Daniel would now take Detective Conkle and the rest of her team to the spot they buried Dylan to a vacant property across the road from Mount Hope Bible Camp, two miles from the Groves family home. In efforts to retrieve Dylan from this well, they needed help from the fire department. For reasons, look, I can understand and I can't understand, but these firefighters weren't told what they were retrieving from the bottom of the well. Maybe because authorities were concerned they would refuse. But to me, that's not fair, because I think they should have had the option to refuse, or to mentally prepare themselves for what they were going to find. The firefighters brought with them a small truck. They attempted to drain the well, but that didn't work because it was a spring-fed well. So they tried a lines with a hook at the end to pull out what they were assigned to pull out. One of the firefighters would later testify when the items started coming up, they were happy because they were doing what they needed to get done. However, as the water drained out of the item, two milk crates, the smell of decomposition became too much because they knew what they were doing. This was a recovery mission to retrieve a small body. So we we get in contact with our dispatch and tell them that we're going to need assistance from the fire department. It's Stephen Ray Gamble. How do you spell your last name for the court reporter? G-A-M-B-I-L-L. And where do you live? I live in Otway. I'd like to direct your attention to June 12th of 2019. Do you recall that date? Yes, sir. Um, with regard to your duties as a fireman, what happened that day? <clears throat> I, uh, I got home about 4.30 from work, and uh, the call had already come in. Um, the call come in as, uh, that we needed to call dispatch uh, to get details for the run. Now, usually when it's out, it's usually something different, not a typical run that we go on. <clears throat> try and pump out a well for the sheriff's department. Okay. Um, so what did you do then? Uh, it's not something that we typically do. Um, so we tried to gather as many tools, materials that we had on hand to try and do this task. Um, we had an, a rough idea of why we were doing it. We had heard rumors. Uh, we did not know. So where were you directed to go to assist uh, the sheriff's department? We were given a address. It was uh, on Mount Hope Road. Um, the address was real close to a church camp. Is the only reason we could even uh, pull something up on our phones to try and find where to go. When we received, when we showed up there, um, of course there was no one that we could see. So we waited and uh, we could see some tire tracks in a field. Uh, Dan, and Rick, at that time, were in a smaller truck. I was in a large fire engine and uh, pumper truck. They went back to see if they could find someone after we'd been there for roughly 10 minutes, and they had took a smaller truck and went back down the road to try and find someone. At that time, I got out of the engine, and I started walking through the field, and that's when I noticed a uh, black SUV coming out of the field. 
and that's when I introduced myself to the deputies. You recall the weather for the week or the weeks before? From you recall what the weather was like that that June? Uh, pretty typical June weather. I mean, it was you know most days sunny, I guess. Ohio. Yeah, one day one thing, one day another. Or every five minutes one thing. Yeah. Something else another five minutes. All right. So. <clears throat> So you get to this field. Uh, who's with you when you get to the field? Um, when we get to the field, it is uh, myself, my brother, Rick Gamble, and Dan Shirey. Okay. Uh, is there anyone else there besides uh, volunteer firemen? Uh, yes. There were uh, three detectives. Okay. Um, did you see the well when you got to the field? Uh, no. You could not see the well until... They walked us over and pointed directly at it. Could you describe it to the jury? What did the well look like? Uh, the well was uh, ground level. It was completely surrounded by grass. Uh, the grass at the time was probably two to two and a half, three feet tall. Uh, you could have just walked right into the well. You, would, you couldn't see it. Um, the detectives took us over pointed at the well and um, asked us to do, to try and pump the water out. Sir, what is, is depicted in State's Exhibit 28? <clears throat> that is the well that we were requested to pump out. Is that true and accurate picture of the well on June 12, 2019? Yes, sir. State's Exhibit 29. Sir, what does this depict? That is the well that we um, were requested to pump out. Uh, you indicated, I believe, in your testimony that it was full of water. Yes. Uh, get a rough estimate of the depth of the well. Yeah, we were told when we showed up on location that the well was roughly 30 feet deep. And um, it was, that was real accurate access the well um, tried to move back some of the vegetation um, and try to see what the depth was what we thought we could do to uh, remove the water from the well and um, uh, see what the ground was like around the well so that if we didn't want to make it collapse or fall in uh, it was just to access the 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 scene, we, our trucks will pump water, but uh, they won't pump water from that depth. And the truck that we have that would even be capable of doing such a thing, we couldn't even get back in that field. Me and uh, my brother, uh, Rick and Dan, then decided that we needed to find uh, generators, a portable pump. Uh, we had some rope back at the station. We had a... Uh, large uh, that we had used before for extrication it's a large metal hook um, that was heavy enough that we felt like if we hung it down there that we could fill something with it uh, as we slowly moved it around um, then at that point um, everybody went to gather these materials hooks um, and also brought in other truck that would be able to access the field. 
All right, may I approach? Exhibit 31. Uh, that is uh, uh, Rick and uh, Mike. I apologize, State's Exhibit 30. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that's Rick and Mike uh, attempting to um, get the hard suction hose down in the well uh, so we can prime it to begin pumping out the well. What is this okay? Um, that's the hose in the well uh, that we were pumping out with the trash pump. Were you successful uh, pumping the water out of the well? Um, we removed between, I'd say, 12 to 15 feet of water. It's probably closer, right around 13 feet of water from the well. Um, and then the pump would not create enough suction to lift that much head pressure to pump the water out at that point. Okay. Um, was it continuing to rain at that point as well? Oh, extremely, yes. All right. Uh, I assume there is it safe to assume there was more water coming back into the well. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Were you able to observe that? From yes. The scene? Okay. So, uh, were any further efforts to pump up, pump out the well made? Uh, yeah, we tried for quite a while. I'd say over a couple hours to pump the well, and then we had even talked about going and getting a smaller pump, like a um, sump pump, small garden hose style pump we figured maybe it would have less head pressure mike had mentioned he had some um, heavy fishing gear and had some hooks that he thought maybe we could get down in there that we could fill around the well and at least try and tell if there was something there and um, uh, that's the time when we had hooked up the extrication hook and i had laid on the ground and was trying to fish around the well and see if i could feel something and at that time, I felt it move once, and then I touched it again, moved the rope where I thought it would be around what was in the well, and I yanked on it, and I felt it hook again at that time. This is the That's uh, Dan Shirey in the white t-shirt, and that is myself um, reaching into the well to try and remove the crates. Sir, what the, is this uh, That's the crates that we were, that we had hooked. That is myself removing the hook from the crates after I had reached in and readjusted it and got a firm grip of it to pull it out of the well. That is the crate once it was removed from the well and we removed the hook equipment from around it. Sir, you previously described um, the crates um, to all this time. Can you, does this give you a, uh, an accurate depiction of what you remember? Yes, sir. Right, what are we seeing in this uh, closer up view of uh, states of the um, it's the, uh, the the white and black or the zip ties um, that they use to tie the crates together and also to tie the chain to the crates so that the chain would not come off of the crates as it was being moved.
and the rocks and weights that are inside of it. An understanding, did you have an estimate of the weight of that, uh, that object? Um, yeah, I would say it's anywhere between 60 to 80 pounds. <clears throat> Once it was removed and um, we had been asked by the deputies to try and help them transport it out of the field, um, we backed our brush truck over close to the uh, crates and what firefighters retrieved, two milk crates held together with a heavy chain which ran through the handles of the crate. Padlocks were attached to the chains to secure them in place, and then they added metal tyres and zip ties. These crates were not separating for anything. They had to be cut open to get them apart. On the inside, the crates were weighed down with several heavy rocks and an iron anchor. These were all placed onto Dylan's small body. Under the rocks and anchor, baby Dylan was wrapped up in several garbage bags, two blankets and duct tape. The milk crates were taken as they were to the medical examiner's office. Forensic pathologist Susan Brown performed the autopsy on baby Dylan's tiny body, and she would give a detailed and graphic report into what happened to this little baby. Dylan was found to have two skull fractures, fractured ribs, a broken arm and a fractured shin bone and these injuries all occurred at different times before his death. This wasn't an accident, because all the injuries were in different stages of healing. However, if we remember, the caseworker that last saw Dylan said she saw no visible injuries on him, that Dylan was fine, but Dylan was far from fine. One particular injury, a large fracture to the left side of Dylan's skull, would have occurred at the time of his death due to the lack of tissue. Due to decomposition, Dylan's brain had liquefied, but Dr. Brown noted a pink fluid in the cranial cavity that she felt was a result of bleeding on the brain. Dr. Brown also noted in her report that Dylan's liver contained evidence of illegal substances, methamphetamines and amphetamines. Due to him being two months old when he died, this could not have been residual from birth. Dylan would have had to have been exposed to these drugs after his birth. She also believed that the drugs could not have come from medication or exposure to the drugs via breastfeeding. It is possible if the parents were smoking methamphetamines or if they were cooking methamphetamines, Dylan may even held the substance, or that could have caused some traces of the drug to be found on dishes or Dylan's baby bottle. Dylan's cause of death could not be determined due to the level of decomposition. All Dr. Brown could determine was that he died by homicidal violence that the injury showed at least three different traumas he had went through in those 49 days he was in his father's care. During the trial, 14-year-old Daniel Jr. testified that he had witnessed bruising and swelling to his baby brother's head. But when he asked his parents what happened, they told him that a dream catcher fell on Dylan and got stuck on his arm, and a tiny stone hit him on the head, causing the bruises. This story is so ridiculous, I can't believe they thought anyone would believe this. So it's no surprise the prosecution and the jury saw right through the lies. Daniel Jr. also testified that every couple of months his father asked him to pee into a cup for him. And this was both before and after Dylan's birth. So now we know how Daniel managed the negative drug screening, which was the catalyst of gaining temporary custody back of Dylan. He was never sober. Now in the trial, something we don't see very often happened – both Daniel and Jessica took the stand to give their testimony. 
They both pled not guilty and they were tried together. But despite the one trial, they both had their own attorney because they both had different stories as to what happened to Dylan. Jessica took the stand first. And if you haven't watched her testimony on YouTube, I highly recommend you do. It is incredibly frustrating to watch. And for the prosecution who handled it with style and sass. Jessica's lawyer basically pandered to her, asking her leading questions. Their defence was to get Daniel a lesser sentence for the murder of their baby son. Ms. Groves, I know that you're claiming that you don't remember a lot of the details um, in this situation. However, do you recall whether or not Daniel Groves participated in the actions that caused Dylan's death? No, he did not. Okay. Um, Did he in any way cause Dylan's death? No. For the prosecution, Julie Cook Hutchinson asked Jessica a number of times to tell the jury how she killed Dylan. All Jessica would do was cry and say it was an accident over and over, not really answering the question. The judge even gets involved and orders Jessica to answer. How is it your husband didn't know you were (coughs) doped up the whole time you were pregnant? Because I kept it a secret. Why didn't you tell Jody Conkle there were all these accidents that killed my baby? Because I was scared. Of what? Everything. What's everything? You were scared of what? Of admitting the truth. Well, tell the jury what the truth is. You didn't tell Detective Conkle what the truth was. You didn't tell your son what the truth was. Tell this jury what the truth is. I don't remember at all. And you lied to your son? Yes, I did. And you lied to Detective Conkle? Yes, I did. But you want this jury to believe you just don't remember and you're not lying to them. Honestly, I don't understand what Jessica's legal team thought they were doing to help her and Daniel's defence by having her take the stand. She only came off making herself and her husband look even more like monsters, if that was even possible. At least admit what you did. Take responsibility. Give Dylan a chance to rest in peace. Give Daniel Jr. some closure. This makes my blood boil. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, does this look like panic to you? Does it? A chain? Three padlocks? Twelve zip ties? Eight wire ties? Eighteen rocks? Six layers of plastic and duct tape? Does this look like panic? I submit to you it looks like extreme planning. Daniel was the next to take the stand and he did not fare much better. All he would say was that he didn't know what happened to Dylan because he didn't see anything. That he just found Dylan dead. And he only helped cover up what happened to him because he was scared of Jessica. That she used intimidation to make him hide Dylan's body. Quote, You had custody, they're going to blame you. Unquote. That he only knew on the way to hospital with his wife in labour that she'd been using throughout her pregnancy. That he definitely was not using drugs when Dylan was born or when Dylan was in his care that he only relapsed because of grief that his son died. In a form of justice, timing that meant Dylan made sure he was on the forefront of everyone's mind, the final day of the trial was on what would have been Dylan's first birthday, the jury taking less than three hours to reach their verdict. Daniel Groves was found guilty of murder, kidnapping, child endangerment, tampering with evidence, gross abuse of a corpse and two counts of felonious assault. 
for his crimes against his baby son. Daniel Groves was sentenced to 47 years to life in prison. He will be eligible for parole when he is 89 years old. Hopefully he will not see that age. He doesn't deserve to ever see life outside of a prison. Jessica Groves was found guilty of aggravated murder, kidnapping, child endangerment, tampering with evidence, gross abuse of a corpse and two counts of felonious assault. For the murder of her two-month-old son, Jessica Groves was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole with an additional 32 years. She will spend the rest of her natural life behind bars where she deserves. Dylan's foster mother for the first few weeks of his life, Andrea Bowling. She'd always hoped she was going to get him back. She fell in love with this sweet baby boy. Andrea blames the system. That the agencies involved failed Dylan Groves horribly. Quote, There needs to be changes made to the system that we have. This should have never happened. I want Dylan's life to have that purpose and that meaning to stop this ever happening again. Unquote. Andrea said the only thing holding her together was that Dylan's death would positively change the reunification process and that one day she would be with Dylan again. Quote, I know he's up there in heaven and I truly believe he's waiting on me. Unquote. As a result of what happened in the Dylan Groves case, Laura Fuller stepped down as the director of SCCS after an investigation determined that the agency mishandled Dylan's case. State Senator Terry Johnson introduced the Senate Bill 216, which is also known as Dylan's Law. This creates requirements that parents of an infant who have been exposed to substance abuse must meet before they can be reunited. Under this bill, parents of a substance-exposed infant must complete a course on caring for a newborn experiencing substance withdrawal. They must complete an inpatient rehabilitation program, and they must undergo and be approved through home study, before they can even think about being reunited with their baby. And after they are reunited, parents would be required to complete even more requirements, including a visit by a caseworker once a month for three months. Not enough in my opinion, but moving on. Regular monthly examinations by a healthcare professional and regular substance testing. Is this legislation perfect? No. But it gives these children a fighting chance so another child doesn't lose their life like baby Dylan. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.